history, and I don't have time to go back over that, but other than to tell you the fact that it was started by Martin Luther right around the time of the Reformation. And I don't think Martin Luther ever really wanted to necessarily start a denomination, but it obviously turned into that. He became the de facto leader because he was the one that led uh, the, the, the Reformation, the Protestant, protesting what was going on in the Catholic Church Reformation. Uh, but what we find, honestly, within the Lutheran Church is a lot of leftovers from Catholicism. And, um, and so we talked a lot about that, how it developed and everything else. And you can go back and listen to that if you want to hear some more of that if you happen to miss it a couple weeks ago. But I want to talk mainly about the doctrine of the Lutheran Church, and there's so much there. Um, so there's no way that I can cover. I mean, we could take two or three weeks on this easily, and I decided not to. Um, so I'm just going to give you kind of the bare bones of some of the things where we would differ for the most part um, and some of the things that I see as, as very wrong with the Lutheran Church um, and, and how they're different from us and how they differ from the Word of God. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that uh, Martin Luther and others that came after him that kind of wrote the, I don't know if policy is not the right word or doctrine is not even necessarily the right word either, um, but some of their confessions, some of the things that they go off of that, that uh, defines the Lutheran church, honestly, I think the reason they ended up where they did in a lot of their positions is because they were looking at it through the eyes of the Catholic church. And they were looking at it with the mindset of what they had known for their entire lives and ended up on the wrong side of the interpretation of some of these passages of scriptures that they use actually as proof passages, but really go right along with the doctrine of the Catholic Church because of that. So let me start, first of all, by talking about the polity of the Lutheran Church. Uh, it's not policy. Polity is the, is the way that the church is organized. And... I'm not going to take time to go through it. It's organized uh, very similar in a lot of ways to the Methodist Church with kind of that little bit of hierarchy there and everything else, and um, I'm not going to take time to go through that t tonight, but what I, what I do want to talk about is the denominations within the Lutheran Church because there's, they're, they're very different from each other, honestly. Um, they, would, they would agree on certain things, but then on a lot of others, they don't. And so the three largest denominations in the Lutheran Church in America are the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and then the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Those are the three main groups. And so I want to break those down just a little bit and kind of tell you about each one of those. The first one is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It was formed in 1988, so we're not talking a lot of years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I guess it would be. Um, but it was a merger of the Lutheran Church in America, the American Lutheran Church, and the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches. And again, there's lots of different denominations, lots of different branch offs, same way that there is within the Baptist Church, and really, honestly, same way that there is within a lot of other denominations. There's always branch offs and, and splinter groups and things like that because of things that they disagreed on. But um, as of 2020, the Lutheran Church, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, had about 3.1 million members. They have, I think, like 2,500 churches, 2,800 churches, um, something like that. Uh, oh, I take that back. I did write it down. 8,894 congregations that they have in the United States. Um, but but the, the thing that sets the evangelical Lutheran church apart is they're very ecumenical. And by that, I mean they're trying to, they're almost trying to bring about like a one world religion. They want everybody to be, we're all the same. If you believe in Jesus, we're all the same, essentially. 
And, uh, of course, that's not true. But they're, they're, um, they're a member of the National Council of Churches in America and a member of the World Council of Churches, uh, as well as several other very ecumenical groups. And, and if you want to see, um, honestly, uh, we talked about the Methodists, and the Methodists uh, are, are going through, they're in the middle right now of a large split within their denomination because, really, the issue of homosexuality. They're, they're, um, they want their bishops and their, and their pastors and whoever else to be able to perform homosexual marriages. They want to allow homosexuals to be pastors within the Methodist church. And there's a whole faction of them that don't want that, and so they're splitting. The ones who are going off on that liberal side, same thing in the Lutheran church, same thing with the Catholic church, and a lot of those are all part of the World Council of Churches. And again, that's not something that you want to have anything to do with as, as a church or religion or anything else. Uh, same thing with the National Council of Churches. You can go look those up, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about as far as how liberal they are in just about everything. Um, you know, very much in favor of abortion, very much in favor of homosexuality, very much in favor of all of these uh, churches of different denominations. And when I say different, I'm talking about Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, anybody that claims Jesus coming together as one religion. So, um, honestly, just, just to really signify the, the growing ecumenical oneness between these apostate denominations, one of the first official acts of the uh, evangelical church, I'm just going to call it the ELCA. That's uh, easier than saying it every time. But in 1988, they elected their first bishop by the name of Herbert Chilstrom, and he was supposed to meet with the, he, the first thing he did, one of the first things he did when he became the president of this new denomination was to meet all at the same time with the Pope of the Catholic Church, obviously, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, and the heads of the Orthodox Churches. That's one of the first things that he did. Let's get all of us together and see you know, if we can come to some agreement. Let's get on the same page. We're all going in the same direction and so on. But he, di he died in 2020. Uh, but he supported the ordination of homosexuals, which a lot of the Lutherans still have not. They don't embrace that yet. A lot of the Methodists do. They don't for the most part. But he, he was in favor of it. He, uh, he announced his agreement with President Clinton. Now, this was back in the early 90s, remember. He was, he was new at that time. This was a new denomination at that time. But he, he, uh, he was in agreement with President Clinton's call to allow homosexuals in the military. Um, he had a commentary that he wrote, and in the book of Hebrews, he said that the Bible's historical records are, quote, exaggerated, stretched beyond what they actually were. That's his view of the Bible, uh, exaggerated. Most preachers within the ECLA are very, very liberal. They're modernists. They are, um, they've, they've printed all kinds of stuff from their publishing house that, that really just honestly promotes unbelief. Um, at the very least, if, if you want to call it that. But, for example, in 1988, they, the ECLA uh, published a book by a guy named Ragnar Livestad entitled Jesus in His Own Perspective. Claimed that Jesus never invoked for himself a special position, didn't claim any kind of messianic titles or anything like that. How can you say that if you just read the Bible, right? I mean, just, just read through the Bible once and you'll be able to see that Jesus claimed all of those things, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the Son of God. I mean, to me, it seems very obvious. Read through the New Testament. That's all you have to do, and you'll see those things. It's not even that you even have to study it. Just read it, right? Um, 1992, the ECLA Division for Church and Society authorized the division uh, or the distribution of a report on human sexuality that claims that homosexuals were cre created by God and that sexual relationships outside of marriage are not always wrong. Talk about moving in a liberal direction. 
And this, this, is, this was when all of this was, was being founded. Uh, the ECLA Youth Program, uh, it's a guide that they wrote. It was entitled, Let Justice Roll Down Like Waters. But it teaches young people that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. Well, you're teaching that to your young people, then guess what happens? They grow up in those churches. They go off to school. They get into these liberal universities, and then they come back, and they want to be pastors and leaders in the church and everything else, and they don't see anything wrong with it because you've taught them those things. And, of course, then it just makes it very easy for them to start pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to the place where the denomination then feels obligated to accept it because they're not strong enough to, to stand up against it. Um, but you have all kinds of different things that are happening like that. So there was a, uh, one particular incident, uh, incident. This happened in February 7th of 1988. They were installing a new bishop within the Lutheran Church. And Chilstrom was the one who was... Um, uh, leading this installation, I guess. And so, I mean, they had everybody there. They had, they had, they had uh, Catholics and Orthodox and Episcopalians and Jewish rabbis and other, other, others who claimed to be Christians and everything. There's a little bit of every religion that was represented at this thing. And instead of getting up and preaching the grace of Jesus Christ or, or the gospel or anything like that, he, he preached a message, if you want to call it that, on environmentalism and pacifism at the installation service for a bishop. Uh, that'll tell you the direction that they're going in with all these things. But he, he, he told all kinds of different stories. He told one story about how he gladly blessed a rosary at a gas station that somebody had asked him to bless. I mean, to me, that shows zero understanding of the Bible, right? If you're going to bless somebody's rosary, then again, that's, that's what this whole World Council of Churches is all about. Let's bring everybody together. We all believe the same thing. And if, you, if you're just a little bit different than me, then that's fine. Blessing a rosary has nothing to do with the gospel. And uh, nowhere in his message did he speak on the cross, the blood, the atonement of Jesus Christ, none of those things. That's not the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's a false gospel of, of church sacraments and universalism and all of these other things. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But... Um, in doctrine and in practice, they're very much contrary to the Word of God, um, and therefore it's unacceptable to God. But, but honestly, that's, that's, that is really a very apt description of the entire Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, as well as all of the other members of the World Council of Churches um, and the National Council of Churches and everything else. That's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The next one is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It was founded in Missouri by German immigrants in 1847. Um, the word synod comes from the Greek word meaning assembly or meeting. It actually has a similar meaning in Latin to council, uh, like a, a group, a meeting. And so the Missouri synod would be like the Missouri council. As of 2020, they had around 2 million members. It's, and, and again, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you add all of the Lutherans up, I think there's about 8 or 10 million in the United States, which again, is not huge. I think the Lutheran Church is somewhere around sixth or seventh in the number of, uh, or in the in the list of um, populous religions. But the the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm just going to call this the LCMS to make it easier to say. But it's they're pretty conservative when it comes to their doctrine, being what is called confessional Lutheran. And what that does is that kind of signifies their desire to to hold to traditional Lutheran doctrines, which again, we're going to talk about some of those, but traditional Lutheran doctrine is basically what Martin Luther produced, if you will. 
Um, they're, not they're not part of the World Council of Churches. They're not part of the National Council of Churches. They're not part of this ecumenical movement for the most part, even though they are moving in that direction. But in the 1970s, they actually went through a great upheaval over these doctrinal issues. And so a number of leaders within that de denomination were starting to move very much in that modernistic uh, direction. And so there was a lot of them that were in there that didn't want to have anything to do with that modernistic direction. And so they published a survey in 1971 that revealed that only 51% of the LCMS denomination leaders and professors believe that the Bible is the perfect word of God. Now, if you don't believe that the Bible is the perfect word of God, then you're starting on the wrong place, and you're going to end up in the wrong place and usually way off from the wrong place. And so, because it was about 50-50, they ended up having a split, and um, the battle really focused particularly on professors at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, Concordia University. Most of those professors were trying to take everything in a liberal direction, and so they, they left. A, about half of it left and formed what was called Seminex, which was seminary in exile, so to speak, and that's where they came up with that word from. But roughly 150 congregations left, became their own denomination. But that kind of purified this LCMS. It, it kind of got them back to the roots of, of being close to what they supposedly had started as. But um, there, was, there's not a, there was not a wholesale house cleaning. They still had a lot of these liberal people who were left in that denomination, and that you know these denominational colleges remained very sympathetic to the um, Seminex, you know, error, and so on. So they're not a member of the National Council of Churches. They're not as ecumenical. They're not as liberal, but they're moving in that direction, and and you know. They would be kind of middle of the road, if you had to say that. You'd say that the, the first group was very, very liberal. The second group is middle of the road. And then the third one is actually the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the WELS. It was a product of a merger in 1917 between German Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Wisconsin and synods in Minnesota and Michigan. They all came together, and they would actually be, as of 2021, they, they had 344,000 people, which, again... The smaller in number a, uh, a group is, doesn't always indicate this, but the smaller in number a group is, the more likely that they are probably holding the line, right? Uh, the larger a group is, the larger a denomination is, and, and again, I, you can't say this across the board, but the larger it is, the less likely the chances are that they're holding to the truth. That's why so many people are jumping on and being a part of it. Um, but they follow that traditional Lutheranism. They refuse to adopt modernism, join the ecumenical councils and all those kind of things. Probably the most con conservative of the Lutheran denominations in America, especially on any kind of scale. There's probably other smaller groups that, that would be maybe more conservative, but this, is just, this will just give you an example. Their statement on the Bible is actually, actually a pretty good testimony to the divine inspiration of the Word of God, and you can see this in contrast to uh, what we were talking about with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They said this, or they wrote this in a book called This We Believe, published by their, their publishing house group, Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. We believe that in a miraculous way that goes beyond all human investigation, God the Holy Ghost inspired these men to write his word. These holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What they said was spoken, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Every thought they expressed, every word they used was given them by the Holy Spirit by inspiration. St. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We therefore believe in the verbal inspiration of the scriptures, not a mechanical dictation, but a word-for-word -word inspiration. 
We believe that Scripture is a unified whole, true and without error in everything it says, for our Savior said the Scripture cannot be broken. We reject any thought that makes only part of Scripture God's Word, that allows for the possibility of factual error in the Scripture, also in so-called non-religious matters, for example, historical or geographical. We reject all views that fail to acknowledge the Holy Scriptures as God's revelation and Word. We likewise reject all views that see in them merely a human record of God's revelation as he encounters man in history apart from the Scriptures, and so, and so a record subject to human imperfections, which is great. I mean, that's, that's about as straight down the line as you can get about the Word of God being the inspired Word of God. And so that'll kind of give you an idea of where they are. They don't have a lot of, I don't, I don't want to take any more time on these. There's, there's a lot more things that you can say about those denominations and about others. But those are the three main ones. And honestly, that's kind of the structure of the, uh, the Lutheran Church. So let's get into the doctrine then. Uh, I, I've picked out a couple things to show you where we are alike. And then I've picked out a few things to show you where we're not alike. And where I believe they're in doctrinal error according to the Word of God. But what the question, what is Lutheran theology or what is Lutheran doctrine, is a very hard, it's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. And the reason why is because Martin Luther himself was not what you would, would consider a systematic thinker. He never sat down and wrote out a systematic theology. And uh, we mentioned Philip Melanchthon uh, a couple weeks ago. He was, he was his interpreter, and a lot of people think or, or say or, or accuse, maybe is, is a better word, uh, that Melanchthon actually distorted Luther's thoughts when he translated a lot of his works from German into English. And so who knows where the truth is, but the doctrinal controversies in the 16th century um, and Lutheranism and all of those things really are indicative of, of the difficulty in defining just exactly what it is that the Lutherans believe. And I'll be honest with you, I had a hard time studying through a lot of this stuff because uh, it's not, it's really not very well defined. And in, in a lot of ways, and you'll see this as we go through it, in a lot of ways, it seems like they contradict, um, th themselves on a lot of these things where if, if somebody, I would love to sit down and talk with somebody within the Lutheran church and, and listen to them explain exactly what it is that they believe. I, I mean, I'm sure they could, um, but I think they would have a hard time doing it because of the way that, that a lot of these things that they talk about really contradict themselves. And, and, and I hope you'll understand and see what we're talking about that when, when we get to it in a little bit. But Luther's own thought always has been the guiding force in, the, in, in defining uh, Lutheran theology. So they go all the way back to the 1500s when Martin Luther was doing most of his writing and kind of defining and separating from the Catholic Church as their basis. Um, but two major Lutheran confessional statements of the 16th century, you had the Augsburg Confession of 1530 and the Formula of Concord of 1576. Those have traditionally been thought to define Martin Luther's teachings, and those are really what drives Lutheran doctrine and theology today. So we're going we're gonna to look at those in just a second, but authority in Lutheranism really is understood as a faithfulness to those confessional doc documents. You are considered to be Lutheran if you hold to those doctrines and, the, and to those confessions. And so, really, it, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church has a formal teaching office. Lutheran do, Lutheranism does not. And so there's not, a, you know, there's not an education wing, so to speak, that's really producing a lot of these things and saying, this is what we believe. This is our defining. Because, again, there's, think about what we talked about within just those three denominations, Right? I mean, you have a far liberal, you have a middle, you have a pretty conservative. They're not even going to believe the same things themselves. 
So to try to define what Lutheranism is, is, is difficult. So um, there's just a wide variance in the, in, the ecumenic, in the ecumenism within the various denominations within the Lutheran Church. And so um, we're going to try to define um, traditional Lutheran doctrine. So you have these two confessions. The, the first one is the Book of Concord. That was published in 1580. There's 10 documents that some Lutherans believe are faithful and authentic and authoritative explanations of the scripture. Uh, besides the three ecumenical creeds, and, and, and ecumenical does not mean what it means today, these ecumenical creeds that they follow actually date all the way back to the Roman times, some of them. Um, but the Book of Concord contains seven documents or creeds that articulate Lutheran theology in the Reformation era. And so the doctrinal positions of Lutheran churches are not uniform because the Book of Concord doesn't hold the same position in all Lutheran churches. Some of them hold this Book of Concord in high regard. Some of it say, yeah, it's a, it's a guide, but it's not necessarily, you know, hard and fast. And so you, you really can't, I mean, doc, doctrine within Lutheran church really is, is pretty fluid, if you will. And then you have the, the, um, the Augsburg Confession. And, and really, the Lutheran church traditionally sees itself as, as quote, the main trunk of the historical Christian tree, founded by Christ and the apostles, and they hold that during the Reformation, the Church of Rome fell away, uh, which, again, I mean, it fell away long before that, but as such, the Augsburg Confession teaches that, quote, the faith as confessed by Luther and his followers is nothing new, but the true Catholic faith, and that their churches represent the true Catholic or universal church. Now, Catholic just means basically one. Um, it does not mean, you know, it doesn't mean the Catholic Church. They're talking about the true Catholic faith, lowercase c. Uh, but when the Lutherans presented the Augsburg Confession to Charles V, he was the Holy Roman Emperor, they explained that, quote, each article of faith and practice was true, first of all, the Holy Scripture, and then also to the teaching of the Church Fathers and the Councils. Well, who are the Church Fathers and the Councils they're talking about? Most of them were all put together by Catholics, right? Bishops, popes, and so on. And so, Really, they, 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 they're interpreting a lot of the things that they believe through the lens and through the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church. So let's get into what they're talking about or, or what they believe. And honestly, first of all, we'll talk about the Bible because traditionally the Lutheran Church holds the Bible to be the only divinely inspired book, the only source of divinely revealed knowledge, and the only norm for Christian teaching. Uh, and of course, solo scriptura, right? Scripture alone, that's what they do uh, or that's what they say. That's the formal principle of faith, the final authority for all matters of faith and morals because, you know, because of its inspiration, its authority, its clarity, its efficacy, and, and all of these other things. And so, um, you know, they say that the Bible is sufficient for everything. And again, that's a great place to start. Um, but the authority of the scriptures has been challenged during the history of Lutheranism. And honestly, we're seeing that in a lot of Lutheran denominations today. Uh, Martin Luther taught that the Bible was the written word of God. It was the only reliable guide for faith and practice. He held that every passage of Scripture has one straightforward meaning, which is the, in the literal sense that is interpreted by other Scripture. And those were accepted as orthodox all the way throughout the 16th and 17th century. But during the 18th century, and this, this just kind of goes back to history, and again, I don't have time to, 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 to go through all of those things, but what arose was something called rationalism. And that was basically advocating reason over faith. Well, it doesn't make sense that there's a trinity, so there's, it, it can't be true. It doesn't make sense that, that, that we're going to spend somewhere for all of eternity, so it can't be true. We can't reason that out. 
Uh, it doesn't make sense that Jesus did these miracles. It's, it doesn't, it's, it's not logical, and so we don't believe it. And so that started changing. They started changing what they believe. And, and you know, most of the laity didn't accept that rationalist position, but a lot of the leaders did. And so in the 19th century, you had a confessional revival that reemphasized the authority of the Bible in agreement with the Lutheran confessions. And so they kind of came back around. But today, uh, Lutherans disagree about the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. Those who are the most conservative, obviously, uh, would agree that the Bible is the final authority. Those who are on that liberal side, part of the World Council of Churches and everything else, don't necessarily hold the Bible as literal. And so you have these theological conservatives that are using the historical grammatical um, method of biblical interpretation. Then you have these theological liberals that are using the higher critic method of theological interpretation. And when we talk about the Bible, we're going to do that um, in a series a little bit later on. But when we talk about that, I'll explain what all of those things are. But there's a big difference in the way that you interpret the Word of God. And, and, and depending on how you interpret the Word of God, you're going to end up with far different conclusions. And that's what's happened within the Lutheran Church. The, in 2008, the U.S. Religious Landscape Survey was conducted by the Pew Research Center, and you've probably heard of them because they're very well known. They surveyed 1,926 adults in the United States that identified themselves as Lutheran. Now get this, okay, this is in 2008, so this is, this is it's, it's a few years old, but it's not old by any stretch. The study found that 30% believed that the Bible was the word of God and was to be taken literally word for word. 30% of Lutherans believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. That's very, very, very low. And if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, then how can anybody that gets up and preaches the Bible say anything, right? Because now you can just say, well, that's what you think, but that's not what I think, so it's different, right? Only 30% believe that. 40% said that the Bible was the word of God, but was not literally true word for word, or they were unsure if it was literally true word for word. 23% of Lutherans said the Bible is written by men and not the word of God. 7% didn't know, they were not sure, or they had other positions. You only have 30% of the people that are believing that the Bible is the word, word of God, word for word, literally? Then you're very, very far off. Either somebody's not teaching it correctly, or you don't have, you, you have a whole group of people that, that has no confidence in the word of God. But a lot of Lutherans today hold less specific views on inspiration and all those things, but... Um, you know, officially they would say that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, but um, in their belief and practice, for most of them, they don't, they don't do that. And so, um, as they hold to those teachings on the word of God and what they believe about the word of God, they're correct. Um, now, obviously, you have 70% of them that don't believe what the Lutheran church says they believe. Otherwise, they would believe that the word of God was, you know, that the Bible was the word of God word for word, literally, uh, or they wouldn't believe that. So, uh, which brings us then again to the Trinity. Lutherans reject the idea that the Father and God and the Son are just faces of the same person. They are Trinitarians. Uh, they they state that both the Old and the New Testament show them to be two distinct, uh, three two distinct persons, but three altogether. So, in other words, they are Trinitarians. And it says this in the Athanasian Creed: We worship one God in Trinity, the Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And again, when they baptize, they baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They they believe in the Trinity. 
They believe in Jesus, and, and, and I don't mean that in just, oh, we believe Jesus. They believe that Jesus um, is the Christ, the Savior that was promised in the Old Testament. They believe that he is both God and man. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the, um, that he is the true begotten of the Father from eternity, that he is born of a virgin and all of those things. Here, again, is the Augsburg Confession, which you remember was one of the two creeds that they follow. The Son of God did assume the human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably enjoined in one person, one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, that he might reconcile the Father unto us and be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. Now, with each of those previous things, we agree. We agree with their statement on Jesus, the Trinity, the Bible. Um, and there's other things that we do agree on, smaller matters, smaller issues of doctrine and so on. But this is where things start to get a little bit murky. Because then you come to the idea of justification. And of course, um, Martin Luther's big thing was justification by faith, right? Uh, the just shall live by faith, and so on. And so the key doctrine of Lutheranism is the doctrine of justification. They believe that humans are saved from their sins by God's grace alone, soli, solo, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, on the basis of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, right? And those are the three things that Martin Luther had listed out. Um, and so, uh, again, with that we agree, but Orthodox Lutheran theology basically says that, that God made the world, including humanity, he made it perfect, he made it holy, and he made it sinless. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden chose to disobey God. They trusted their own strength. They trusted their own knowledge. They trusted their own wisdom. Man fell. Sin passed upon all men. And so people are saddled then with that original sin. They're born sinful. They're unable to avoid committing those sinful acts. Now, here's, here's where we start to get a little bit off, all right? Because for Lutherans, they believe that that original sin is the chief sin. It's a root and a fountainhead of all actual sins. And I think it's important to note because it's going to come into play later. The main sin that anybody could commit is not rejecting Jesus Christ. It's not blaspheming the Holy Ghost or any of those things. It's your original sin. That's your chief sin. That's your main sin. Which, again, we're all born with that original sin, if you will. We all come from Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We find that in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, right? So that original sin is there, and it is passed to all of us. But they say that's the chief sin. That is, that is the main sin that you need to get forgiven, which is going to come into play later because that's where infant baptism and all these other things take place. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but Lutherans teach that sinners... They're capable of doing outwardly good works and good deeds, but they're not capable of doing works that satisfy God's justice. And again, that all sounds good, right? We can do good on the outside, but none of that good is enough to overcome our sin and, and receive grace, right? And, and, and be saved and so on. But every human thought, every deed is, is, is infected with sin, sinful motives. And so, because of that, we deserve eternal damnation in hell. We agree, with the, we, we agree with them on those things. But, they say that God in eternity has turned his fatherly heart to this world, planned for its redemption because he loves all people and does not want anyone to be eternally damned. Again, we agree with that. But to this end, quote, God sent his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, into the world to redeem and deliver us from the power of the devil and to bring us to himself and to govern us as a king of righteousness, life and salvation against sin, death, and an evil conscience. 
And that's, again, that's, that's, Luther has a large catechism and a small catechism. That was written in the large catechism. But because of that, Lutherans teach that salvation is possible only because of the grace of God that's made manifest in the birth life and grace. Uh, birth, birth life, suffering, death, resurrection, presence of the power of the Holy Ghost, Jesus Christ, and all of those things. So, by God's grace, made known and effective in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a person is forgiven, adopted as a child, and heir of God, and given eternal salvation. This is the formula of Concord. Again, this is one of their two documents that they form everything on. And I'm going through this very quickly because a lot of these things we know we agree with. Okay, we're getting, to a, we're getting to a point here. But they said this, Christ is a perfect satisfaction and reconciliation of the human race. He submitted to the law for us, bore our sin, and in going to his Father, performed complete and perfect obedience for us poor sinners from his holy birth to his death. Thereby he covered all our disobedience, which is embedded in our nature and in its thoughts, words, and deeds, so that this disobedience is not reckoned to us as condemnation, but is pardoned and forgiven by sheer grace because of Christ alone. So Lutherans believe that individuals receive this gift of salvation through faith alone. And again, all of that sounds good because it's, that's, that's what we believe. Jesus Christ uh, did it for us, right? He took the penalty. He took the blame. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. And without that, we don't have salvation. They say that they believe all of those things. And so saving faith is the knowledge of, the acceptance of, the trust in the promise of the gospel. And even if faith itself to them is seen as, as a gift of God. It's created in the hearts of Christians by the work of the Holy Spirit through the word and baptism. Now, that's where we start to get off. Because they say this, faith receives the gift of salvation rather than causes salvation. And I sat there for a long time trying to figure out just exactly what they mean by that. Faith receives the gift of salvation rather than causes salvation. So Lutherans then reject what's known as decision theology. I've never heard it called that before until I read that in, in some of their stuff. But sure enough, I went on to Wikipedia and there is decision theology. Decision theology is exactly what we believe. You have to make a decision whether you're going to accept or reject Jesus Christ. They say, basically along with Calvinism, and they're a little bit different from Calvinism. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But they say along with Calvinism that you don't have a choice in it. You don't have a choice in whether or not you, ex you receive this grace or not. You don't, you don't get to make that decision for yourself. You make decision theology is where you make a conscious decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ. They don't agree with that. They don't believe that you have that, that option, which is then where the sacraments come in. How many sacraments are there in the Catholic Church? Seven, right? Seven sacraments. How many? We don't call them sacraments, but how many do we have? Two. Right? What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay? They say that they have two as well. Many of the Lutheran churches add a third one in there, which is confession and absolution, which we'll talk about in a second. But this is where it starts to get very murky on whether or not, and I don't know, I don't know the answer to this, but whether or not those who are within the Lutheran church truly know Jesus Christ as their Savior or not. Because everything that they talk about with the doctrine of the gospel and everything else sounds good, but then they come down to this. They get into, they get into the sacraments, and, and again, first, of, first off is, the, is baptism. But um, they, they say that sacraments are sacred acts of divine institution. Again, uh, maybe a small difference in, in what we would believe about that, but whenever they are properly administered, this, this comes from them, 
by the use of the physical component commanded by God along with the divine words of institution, God is, in a way, specific to each sacrament, present with the word and physical component. So if you're doing baptism and you're doing it according to the way that they say you have to do it, then God is present there and God's in it. Same thing with uh, the Lord's Supper. They call it Eucharist, which is another Catholic terminology. We don't call it the Eucharist, right? We call it the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, or communion, if you will. But um, they, they take these, these ideas and basically say that God is in them physically. Basically, when you're taking the Lord's Supper, he is physically there and so on. But he basically, this is what they say as well. He earnestly offers to all who receive the sacrament forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. How does that sound to you? He, off, he earnestly offers to all who receive the sacrament forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. What does that mean? You better take, you better be baptized. You better take the Lord's Supper. You better get involved in this confession and, and absolution and all of this stuff or you don't have salvation and eternal life, right? Because if those, if those sacraments can offer that, and do offer that, then it's not salvation by grace through faith alone. It's that plus all of these other things. And so basically they say that he also works in the recipients to get them to accept these blessings to increase the assurance of their possession. So to them, you're not doing these things for salvation, but you are. But you're not, but it increases the, uh, the, the fact that you know that you have it. Again, it's, it's, it's very, very confusing when you sit down and try to figure out exactly what they're saying. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but you also need these sacraments. But the sacraments don't necessarily save you. They just give you the assurance of your salvation. But you better do it because that's what's going to, to forgive your sins and make sure you have eternal life. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's very confusing in, the, in their doctrine. And they're, they're, they're not dogmatic about the number of sacraments either. Certain denominations have three, four, five. Uh, there's no set number. And so in Luther's, Luther's large catechism, um, some talk about two sacraments, which would be baptism and communion. But later on, um, they added confession and absolution as the third sacrament. Some even have four sacraments. So it just all depends on what they believe. But it gets very interesting and honestly confusing when it comes to baptism because they say over and often that works is not necessary for salvation. And they say that works is not necessary for salvation. Good works is, is great, but you don't need it for salvation. But it very much appears that baptism is necessary for salvation. When you start reading through everything that they say about baptism, because Lutherans believe that baptism is a saving work of God. They say that, that it's mandated, that it's instituted by Jesus Christ. And again, I would agree with that other than the fact that it's not a saving work of God, right? It doesn't, baptism doesn't save us, right? Baptism is a means of grace through which God creates and strengthens saving faith as the washing of regeneration in which infants and adults are reborn. Infants are reborn through baptism? Adults are reborn through baptism? That's a, that's a direct quote from them. That's what they say about baptism. So if you're being reborn by baptism, are you being reborn by faith in Jesus Christ? Or is the water doing that? Is the baptism doing that? So 
since the creation of faith is exclusively God's work, they say, it does not depend on the actions of the one baptized, whether infant or adult. So again, now you're going back and saying, it doesn't, it's, it's not the work of being baptized that washes you away. Christ is doing the washing, but you have to be baptized in order to be washed. It's, it's very, very confusing and very, very deceptive, if you will. But even though baptized infants, they say, cannot articulate that faith, Lutherans believe that it's, it's present all the time. If you get baptized, your sins are washed away, you're cleansed, that's why they baptize infants. This, this comes from, uh, from one of their writings as well. Lutherans teach baptism to be necessary. Get this, okay, and this is why I'm saying, all right, pay, pay close attention to the way that they describe this. Ba- Lutherans teach baptism to be necessary, but not absolutely necessary for salvation. That means that although baptism is indeed necessary for salvation, it is, as Luther said, contempt for the sacraments that condemns, not lack of the sacraments. Therefore, one is not denied salvation merely because one may have never had the opportunity to be baptized. This is what is meant by saying that baptism is necessary, but not absolutely necessary to salvation. How confusing is that? Right? How do you, how do you get to the point where you say, well, I, I am saved. Well, how do you know? Have you been baptized? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, but, but it's not necessary. Well, it is necessary, but it's not absolutely necessary. It, it's very, very confusing. How would anybody know within the Lutheran church whether they were saved or not, right? Um, and whether they, that work was needed. If, if you were to ask a Lutheran, what do I need to do to get to heaven, Right? What kind of answer could they give you? That's, that's where I'm confused, right? Well, you need to believe in, in Jesus Christ and accept his death on the cross, but you can't accept it because you don't really get that choice. It's not your choice to decide whether you're going to accept it or reject it, but Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, so if you, if, if you um, are worthy to accept that gift or if, you, if somehow you, that gift is bestowed upon you, then, well, you need to be baptized on top of that because that's what really washes your sins away. But it's not absolutely necessary because if you died and you weren't baptized, then you're not necessarily going to hell. But you see what I'm saying? How, how do you explain that to somebody and give them the assurance that they're going to heaven when they die, right? Uh, to, and, and maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but everything that I've read and tried to put together with this, you're going all over the place about saying what's needed, what's not needed, what's necessary, what's not necessary, what's necessary, what's not absolutely necessary. And it just kind of gives you this big circle that you're trying to figure out. What, what do I need to do to be saved, right? Could you imagine if, if, uh, if the uh, Philippian jailer had, had walked up and Paul was a Lutheran and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved, right? Paul said what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, right? Versus... Well, you know, all these other things that we just talked about. So it's faith alone that receives these divine gifts, so they say. So, so Lutherans confess that baptism, quote, works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Now, this is where I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 because Lutherans use this passage as a proof text. Of course, they're using a different version of the Bible, which really kind of makes it say something a little bit different, but it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Of course, all right, let me, let me give you a little bit of context. I'm talking about Noah and his family being saved in the flood, right? Verse 21 says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
their interpretation of this verse is very much rooted in Catholic doctrine and certainly interpreted through that lens. And so Lutherans administer baptism to both infants and adults. And in the special section on infant baptism in his large catechism, uh, Martin Luther argues that infant baptism is God-pleasing because persons so baptized were reborn and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So if you're baptized, you're reborn and you're sanctified. So, hey, we might as well do that for infants. They can get rid of that original sin, uh, gets, gets rid of their sins, that sanctifies them, and God's pleased with that because the sins are being forgiven and they're being reborn and they're being sanctified. What else can be a better thing than that? So let's do it for the babies. That's, that's exactly what his idea is, which makes me question whether or not Luther even understood salvation completely either, right? Because if you're adding that to salvation, it's not salvation. It's works, and you're doing something to earn it, right? Which, by the way, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, the like figure, it's not, it's not talking about literal baptism. It's using, it's using Noah being saved in the ark as a figure and as, a, as an example of uh, Jesus Christ suffering and so on. We can talk about that later. But then you come to the Eucharist, which is their Lord's Supper, and uh, they say that the true body and blood of Jesus Christ are truly present in, with, and under the forms of the consecrated bread and the wine for all the people who eat and drink it. So that's a doctrine that the formula of Concord calls the sacramental union. And then that's when you get into confession and absolution again. Um, many Lutherans receive the sacrament of penance before receiving the Eucharist. And so what they do is they'll come down to an altar, they'll kneel before the altar, they'll confess their sins openly to whoever is there in the front, a, a, a bishop or a priest or whoever else. That priest absolves their sins, and then they can go and take Eucharist. They can take the Lord's Supper at that point. Again, how is that any different than Catholic doctrine? Now, they don't do it as often. They basically only do it before they take the Lord's Supper. It's not, you know, you're not walking into a confessional booth and making confessions the way that Catholics do every Sunday or whatever. But it's still the same thing. How does that man have any power to absolve your sins or anything else, right? And they even have a thing that they have written into their, you know, clergy manual or whatever that prohibits the clergy from revealing anything that they hear at this confessional. Otherwise, they can be excommunicated. There's another Catholic term that you hear right? Which excommunicated to them does not necessarily mean kicked out of heaven, but you're kicked out of that position. You're no longer allowed to be clergy in the church and so on. But um, general confession and absolution, which is known as penitential rite, is, is actually proclaimed in the Eucharist liturgy. In other words, when they're, when they're saying all the things that they say and read before, a, uh, before the Lord's Supper is taken, they actually absolve everybody's sins in that whole liturgy. So, again, they're doing the same kind of thing. They would claim that good works are not necessarily necessary for salvation, but then adding the sacrament to salvation, I don't understand how they can say that, right? If, if works are not necessary, then why is baptism necessary? If works are not necessary, then why is the Eucharist ne necessary? If works are not necessary, then why do you have to have your sins absolved and confessed to, to a man on a kneeling bench, Right? They lay the stole, the little, the little cloth over top of the person that's doing the confession and, and absolve their sins. I mean, that's it's very Catholic in the way that those things are done. Which brings us then to conversion. In Lutheranism, conversion or regeneration in the strict sense of the term is the work of divine grace and power by which man, born of the flesh and void of all power to think, to will, or to do any good thing, and dead in sin is 
through the gospel and holy baptism, taken from a state of sin and spiritual death under God's wrath into a state of spiritual life of faith and grace, rendered able to will and to do what is spiritually good and especially made to trust in the benefits of the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. So during, during uh, conversion, if you will, you're moved from impenitence to repentance. Um, the Augsburg Confession actually divides repentance into two parts. One is contrition, that is, terrors smiting the conscience through the knowledge of sin. The other is faith, which is born of the gospel, or of absolution, and believes that for Christ's sake sins are forgiven, comforts the conscience, and delivers it from terrors. Which, again, um, and, and we're coming to a close here, but they also believe in predestination, meaning you don't have a choice. You don't get to decide whether you're going to accept or reject Jesus Christ. You are either predestined. Now, I think this is very, very interesting as well. Lutherans adhere to divine monergism is what the, what the term is that they use, but it's the teaching that salvation is by God's act alone. And, and so they reject the idea that humans in their fallen state have any say in the matter. They cannot accept or reject Jesus Christ. Um, they believe that although humans have a free will when it comes to doing right or wrong, they don't have any free will. They don't have any choice in a spiritual work of righteousness in their heart without the presence and the aid of the Holy Spirit. And again, I believe that the Holy Spirit does that work, right? The Holy Spirit brings that conviction. That's the only thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of somebody who's not saved is to convict them of their need for Jesus Christ. But we have to make that choice. And so unlike some Calvinists, actually, who, who do hold to that same idea of predestinations, uh, predestination, Lutherans don't believe in a predestination to damnation, um, usually referencing, quote, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, and they say that as a way to, you know, to prove that they don't believe that God condemns anyone to damnation. They teach that eternal damnation is a result of the unbeliever's sins, rejection of the forgiveness of sins, and unbelief. But again, it's such a contradiction, because if you're going to say that God predestines some people to be saved, then you have to say that God predestines some people to not be saved. There, you can't have it both ways. Well, God predestines some people to be saved, but he doesn't predestine some people to be damned to hell, right? Well, if you're going to say the one, you have to say the other, because there's only two choices. There's no middle ground. Right? No, 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 it's your sin. You didn't, you didn't choose to accept Jesus Christ. Well, you just said I didn't have that choice. I'm either predestined to be saved, or I'm pre, but I'm not predestined to be damned. But if I, but if I do get damned to hell, then the, then the reason why is because I had that original sin and I didn't choose to accept Christ. You can't have it both ways, and that's what, they're, that's what they want. And then when it comes to, to judgment, eternal life, they don't believe in any sort of earthly millennial kingdom of Christ, either before or after his second coming. They teach that when you die, the souls of Christians are immediately taken into the presence of Jesus. They await the second coming of Jesus Christ in the last day. On the last day, all those bodies will be resurrected. The souls will be reunited with the same bodies that they had before they died. And then the bodies are going to be changed, the wicked to a state of everlasting shame and torment, the righteous to an everlasting state of celestial glory, and so on. But, um, and then they talk about the judgment. The, 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 the unsaved are going to be judged. The saved will be judged. But again... You look at their definition of saved and unsaved, it's very, very hard to understand who they believe is saved and who they believe is not. But it sure seems to, to point to the fact that they believe that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus baptism, plus the Eucharist, 
plus confession and absolution before the Eucharist and all of those other things. And so the Lutheran belief system leaves me very much in doubt to the salvation of somebody who actually holds to those beliefs. I think that within this, you know, you know that, that, that it's the same way within any denomination. There are, there are a good number of them who probably could be saved. Um, but if you're adding anything to salvation, it's not salvation. It's either Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, or it's not salvation. So if you're adding baptism to it, it's not salvation. If you're adding the Lord's Supper and, and the, the confession and absolution before the Lord's Supper, if you're adding that to salvation, then it's not salvation because it's not Christ alone at that point. Yes, they say that he's the one, you ought to have faith. Yes, he gives grace. Yes, all of these other things. But then when you add that to it, it's not that. I want you to look at one last passage and we're done. John chapter 14. Now, I, I'm not God, obviously. I don't know their hearts. I don't, you know, and I admit that I don't, uh, I have a hard time understanding just exactly what the Lutherans really believe. So I might be completely misinterpreting what they believe. I, I, I admit that. But it's that so many of their statements seem to be contradictory to each other. But it seems pretty plain that they're adding these things to salvation. And so the fact that so many of the Lutheran denominations are moving toward ecumenism, which is this one world church, the, the Catholics and the uh, Lutherans and the Methodists and everybody coming together under one religion. The fact that they're, they're trying so hard to push toward that means, uh, it really gives an indication to me that they don't understand salvation. If you can link arms with the Catholics and say we're going in the same direction, then you don't understand salvation. Because the Catholics are not going in that direction. They're basing everything off of works, right? Um, they, see, they see them as either believing the same things or as another way to heaven, in which case they don't understand the truth. I don't know which one it is, but either way, the fact that they're linking arms with people who are very clearly teaching things that are not true salvation shows me that they don't understand what true salvation is. Because you see there in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, and we'll end with this verse. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He doesn't say but by me in baptism. He doesn't say but by me in anything else. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the conclusion that we have to come to based on what the Word of God says is it's either Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone plus nothing or it's not salvation. And when you as a Lutheran church and as a Lutheran denomination are saying it's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus you've got to be baptized to get your sins washed away. Plus, you've got to have confession of sins and get somebody to absolve those sins for you and take the Eucharist and all those things so you can live this sanctified life and all those things after that. To me, it's not salvation. And I'm not saying that there's nobody within the Lutheran church that's saved. I'm not saying, and, and again, it, it might even be that I completely am misunderstanding what they're saying they believe. But um, when you add anything to salvation like they are doing, it's not salvation. And... That's, that's the conclusion that we have to come to when it comes to the Lutheran Church. I hope I'm wrong, but in everything that I've read and hope and think that I understand about it, um, I don't think I am. So there's the Lutheran Church. We'll get into a new one next week, all right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for an opportunity to be here tonight. I pray that you'd send us away uh, from here with a, with a desire in our hearts to tell other people about Jesus Christ. 
that you keep us safe as we do it. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.